Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a sexual health communication platform. We offer therapy to people who are struggling with STI stigma, um, as long as our therapists uh, are in that state, of course, um, and support people with finding their own therapists. Uh, there's this aspect of coaching, if you will, people through their disclosure process. If you want to go over that, you can reach out to me at Courtney at SPFPP.org. Um, and everything we do is it's a nonprofit. Everything's free. I always ask if you found value in anything that you've gotten here that you consider making a donation. Um, if you're someone who works at a clinic or health organization in public health, like think of us, think of me when you're looking at any sort of opportunities where there's a, a space for someone like me to be able to come in and offer my experience as well as the experiences that have been shared with me on this platform. So speaking engagements, conferences, uh, if you want me to come talk to your students, I've done some uh, speaking at colleges. And uh, yeah, that's been pretty much what I've been up to. If you want to interview me for your podcast or your show, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. All of the media opportunities are great for the organization and pushing forward our purpose and our mission of advocating for anti-stigmatizing, identity affirming, and sex positive, pleasure positive um, health care for everyone. So, um, yeah, that's what we got here. And then Ashley is our guest today. Ashley um, is taking part in this Oregon Health Authority uh, podcast series. Um, I'm interviewing people who are living in Oregon about their experiences with their healthcare providers, sex positivity, and how they've been able to find resources to navigate stigma post whatever SCI diagnosis. So Ashley, I am going to ask you to just share your pronouns um, as well as whatever your diagnosis is or has been. And then I'll just let you kind of tell me about that experience. And then, um, you know, like you said, we'll go with the flow, like you said before we started recording. And I'll just ask questions in and out. Good. So my name is Ashley. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And I have previously been diagnosed with chlamydia, HPV, and HSV, which is herpes, as most people know. Um, with those... Uh, were these all at once? No, they okay. were not. I've had a couple of different experiences, some with my primary doctor, some with urgent care situations so kind of a little bit um a variety i guess um but chlamydia was the first thing i was ever diagnosed with and uh that was with a primary doctor and i feel like when that happened it was very just it was i went in for just a screening i personally like to get screened when i have new partners or end with a partner before I have a new partner. So um, the first time I didn't even have symptoms, it was just one of my deciding to go in and get screened. And uh, it was very just like, you tested positive for this, there's this medication and not a big deal, just tell whoever you're sleeping with so they can get checked too, like out the door kind of thing. I feel like just because they had medication for it, it was just, it was given to me as not a big deal. Here you go. 
that sort of thing. Um, with that being said, at that time, I already had knowledge of it, so I didn't feel super, like, I had a bunch of questions or I wasn't unsure, but, like, somebody that didn't have knowledge of that, and I feel like that could have been scary just being, like, pushed out the door, like, here's your medicine, you're good, you'll be fine afterwards. That's my personal take on that. Um, when I was diagnosed with HPV, it was also from a primary care doctor at the time, a different one. I was a lot younger. I was still in high school. It was uh, when it was still kind of new, I feel like, even in the medical world, as far as how they were figuring it out and presenting it to people. Uh, so when I had it, I had the kind that gives you genital warts. And um, so with that, they still, when I went through it, didn't really distinguish between the cancer-causing kinds and the genital warts kind. So it was kind of given to me as a whole and not distinguished like it is nowadays. Um, so that was kind of scary. I had to go and get, like, biopsied um, for my cervix. And they did a procedure where they medically burnt off of the warts. And that was all pretty – I was – I wasn't even graduated from high school, so I was pretty young, so I was pretty scary. Um, but they also didn't give me a lot of info as far as, um, like, if it would go away or not, like, what it would do, like, what moving forward looked like. Uh, I do think it was because they just didn't have a lot of that knowledge like they do today. But um, they did a biopsy, and then I'm not really sure. However many years later, they said to do, like, a womanly exam again back then I don't remember they just like tested again and for a few exams of mine so that I like I'm gonna say it's like one to three years they do that um it showed up in my biopsy still and then in 2009 I got pregnant for the first time and so they do a whole bunch of like tests like that just be for like the safety of being pregnant knowing and everything and it was just gone and they were just like I don't know. It's just gone. That that was just all they had to like tell me. And I'm like, what do you mean it's just gone? You know, like what? How? Like I was never told that was possible. I had all these questions. I mean, it's good news, but you're still like confused and kind of questioning if it's accurate, given the fact you were never told that before. And uh, so I kind of just like went with the flow. They did come out with the vaccine for HPV, and I was told I should get that, so I did. Um, and then all of my like screening since have just been cleared from it. And I never really, no doctor ever like explained it further to me. I feel like I have an understanding now, but it's only because I found a bunch of pages like yours on social media and people that present like current information that I like now realize I probably just had this strain with general warts and they went away and it goes away. Um, so now I understand that, but it was really weird for me to be going to my doctor with questions and not having them be really answered and even at some point in time I'm just saying I don't know like that it's fair if they don't know I'd rather that than be lied to but still it's unnerving when you're expecting to that's where you go when you want medical advice usually so um and then my diagnosis with HSV that was a little bit more recent. It was a, about a year ago, actually, um, last month. So that was a little bit weirder. I 
have never had anything that I knew that made me go to the doctor um, prior to my diagnosis. For that, I've never had a cold sore or anything generously that made me think that. But like I said before, I do personally get tested in between new partners. And when I do that, I ask them to test me for everything. And prior to being diagnosed with HSV, I assumed that included herpes. And I recently, going through this diagnosis, found out it did not. I had never even been tested for it before, even though I thought I was getting tested when I said everything each time. Um, But I got an anonymous text through a website you can use to, like, have somebody, like, tell you, like, hey, you've probably been with somebody that has this STD, and you can, like, choose from, like, a whole list, you know, of STDs. So someone sent me a text and picked chlamydia, gonorrhea, and herpes as the ones I should probably get tested for. And I was like, it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know, it's just a weird lineup. Um, Oddly enough, it was, oddly, I don't know how odd, but it was right after I had ended things with a partner, so I already had gone and got tested like three days before I got this text message. But with that being said, I saw that list um, I had gotten my results. They were negative before I got the text. So I kind of was like, this has to be like a joke or something mean. I like, I just got tested. And then I was just like, it was just weird. It was weighing on me. So I emailed my doctor and I said, I got this text. I know I was just tested. I know these things were negative, but I, I kind of just like want to retest. I don't know. Like I was just feeling weird about it. And she was like, I sent her a picture of the text and she was like, well, actually you weren't tested for herpes. And I was like, what do you mean? I thought I got tested for everything. You drew my blood, like, you know, HIV, everything. Like, she was like, no, we don't really test for herpes unless you specifically ask for it or you're like showing symptoms and you were just doing it to be cautious. You didn't have symptoms. So she had me go back in to retest because now I was requesting it and had that text message. Um, so they did like the blood, a blood test. And um, that took much longer to come back, which was nerve-wracking, than, like, chlamydia, because that comes back quicker. But um, when I got my results, I had actually tested positive for type 1 and type 2. And um, my type 2 numbers were super high, and my type... I don't remember off the top of my head my numbers, but my type 1 numbers were a lot lower and I, because I have access to my healthcare online, I got all of those results back, of course, at night when my doctor wasn't in the office. So I did a whole lot of Googling, which <laughs> cannot always be a good thing, uh, especially when you Google things like or any sort of like illness or sickness, like across the board, you usually read about or see the worst of the worst when it comes to that. Um but my doctor did call me the next day and this is my prime. She's my gynecologist and I've had three of my kids through her. So we've been like for years, I've been with her and she, even with that, she was very much just like, so I, I'm sure you saw online cause she knows I have access. Um, you tested positive for these. And she was like, it's, there's really no way to know when you got it could have been a long time ago. And you just like, haven't had any symptoms. Like, it's just like kind of dormant in your body. She's like, so there's no way to know for sure who you got it from. Um, and she was like, you should tell 
uh, your sexual partners moving forward that you have it because you can give it to them. She did tell me that I could pass it along with an outbreak or without an outbreak. Um, and she said I could never have one or I could later down the road. Like, there's no way to know that. And she did give me the option of getting medication before I had an outbreak just to have. Uh, she didn't really explain the medication well just that there was medication and I had like she was willing to give it to me basically and I said yes right then and there this was the day after I just found out and I hadn't I like googled but like I didn't have an outbreak and I was just kind of panicked to be honest um so she prescribed me a cyclovir I want to say and I got it but didn't start taking it yet I was wanting to do my own research I like to be more natural in my life anyways so I just wanted to have it in case to have the option but to do my own research and uh then like a month and a half after that I had my first outbreak um so I did use medication for that for my first outbreak um and that, I only took it for like five days um it was pretty awful painful uh, after my outbreak cleared up, though, I kept having nerve pain, and it was, like, so bad that I was missing work and needing my kids to be, like, like help with my kids. Like, I just couldn't do day-to-day -day life. It was just the nerve pain, like, without an outbreak. So I started taking the medication daily. My doctor suggested that that might help rather than taking pain meds for the nerve pain to try and, like, kind of stop it in closer to the beginning of what was causing it and so I did that for like three months I took it two pills a day and if I missed one pill even I would like my nerve pain would be like awful so it was helping me so I kept taking it um then after maybe like three-ish months of that I went on vacation and forgot my medicine and noticed that I didn't have any nerve pain on my vacation and so I just didn't take it and kind of just let my body do its thing and knew I had it as a plan um and through all that my doctor really just just first gave me the medication she gave me like gels to help with numbing for pain that I needed she's really given me anything I just email her like seems how she knows I have the diagnosis like anything that I request but it's all been things that I request because I did my own research and knew that I wanted more so than her like suggesting it type of a thing or if I came to her with something I researched she might suggest something better in her opinion to try but um a lot of my knowledge came from my own research and finding pages with people that are posting and being upfront like you very similar um so I found that to be a lot, a lot more helpful than my doctor but he has been helpful in the fact of for me personally somebody else that may not be so proactive with their research or finding tools on their own and you know might not be so helpful thank you for walking us through each of those diagnoses uh chlamydia hpv and hsv1 and 2 uh did that way of communicating with your doctor work for you like for you to be able to do your research, find that there's something that you're interested in and present it to your doctor and then get their opinion? For me personally, it, it really did. And it was great that I could do it electronically because just in today's world, having a busy life and stuff, I could just shoot our message when I was at work and 
she would get back to me rather than making an appointment and I'd have to, you know, have a day that I have time to go in and just to talk to her type of the thing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that really has been helpful for me. The way that you're communicative with your healthcare provider, do you say, would you say that you're that communicative with your partners in regards to your health? Now, yes. <laughs> Ooh, tell me more. Yes. What do you mean now? Um, well, so every time that I have been diagnosed with an STI, I have told all, all of my partners within reasonable time for what they were um, that needed to know. So I'm, I've always just been open and honest about that. That's just personally, I, did, I didn't feel I had a choice any other way. That's just who I am. Um, but as far as talking about sexual health prior to engaging in sex, that didn't really come for me until after being diagnosed with HSV. That changed a lot for me on as far as that goes and being comfortable with it and really just realizing how important it is and realizing that even though it might be uncomfortable or the other person might not take it well like that to me now is more of a red flag as to where prior I probably would have just been like mm, this is awkward I'm just not going to do it okay uh thank you for sharing that and you say partners are you mutually monogamous or was this just um, dating? no I no I would say that um well when I'm in a relationship, I'm monogamous, but I'm not always in a relationship. So okay. when I'm single, I sometimes have multiple partners. Okay. Uh, and I was just But sure that. I don't clarity. do that, like, secretively. I, you know, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. So since your diagnoses and, like, having SCIs, would you say that that experience made it more real to you for you to start initiating and having conversations with partners about their sexual health? Absolutely, yeah. I do think that. And did your diagnosis of herpes, I mean, um, let me re-ask this, uh, did having tested positive for chlamydia in the past allow for your diagnosis of herpes to be received in an easier or less impactful or stigmatizing way? Um, I want to say that it was, it didn't make it easier because chlamydia gets presented so like nonchalantly like I literally had so I have been diagnosed with chlamydia more than one time my story is sharing it was the first time um I've had a doctor call it the common cold of sexually active people which really just you know what's that okay take some you know it's just passed off so nonchalantly like not a big deal everyone gets chlamydia if they have sex with more than one person don't worry about it you're good to go so it gets presented to you that way. So like you're like, oh, oh okay, cool. Take medicine, tell the person. Uh, I, I feel like HSV gets presented just a little bit more like this is, you have to start telling people this. There's nothing we can really do. Like if you have some symptoms you need help with, contact us then. I have a little bit, different. I have a little bit of a problem with like it being presented, chlamydia being presented, if you have sex with more than one person, it's fine. It's like the common cold because it only takes once. It only takes one person to uh, miss symptoms. It only takes one person to test positive and not tell 
their partner that they tested positive. It only takes one person not being tested for an extended period of time. There, It only takes someone not being informed and educated uh, to even go and get tested for chlamydia. Um, in my experience I had with chlamydia, I didn't know it was chlamydia until like I started to notice that like I wasn't urinating like I normally do. There was no pain, there was no blood, there was no discharge. It was just I was peeing slow. And then when I went to go get tested, thank goodness, like I went into the doctor because I was starting to have prostate pain. I didn't know it was prostate pain until I got there and the lady did the prostate exam. I was like, ow, <laughs> right? So there is, I'm, I'm really wanting to challenge this idea that mutual monogamy and practicing that is more valuable than can uh then mutual non-monogamy and being able to communicate with multiple partners about frequency of testing about hey i tested positive you may want to pause from uh sexual activity with partners and i really love that your doctor talked about chlamydia as the common code because that's how all sti should be spoken about you know it's something that's may happen it might not and even with herpes like hearing how your doctor told you you have to tell everybody this you may you you might still pass it on with or without an outbreak you also might not pass it on and i think that the framing of language really does something for a person who's receiving a diagnosis and that language also does something for people who are receiving a disclosure from us because me telling you hey you can still get herpes you know even if we wear a condom even if i'm not having an outbreak versus yeah you know people have sex with herpes with and without barriers and they still don't pass it on so i mean there's a chance but uh there it's there, there's a survey from something positive for positive people where it shows that uh under 30 percent of people who have herpes and a, a partner who is negative for it have not passed the virus on to them at least not to their knowledge so being able to frame it in a way and be given the dialogue language uh framework to be able to have these conversations with partners and even after chlamydia like it was maybe you should tell your partners, like just tell the people that you're most recently sexually active with. There still wasn't a framework for how to disclose that. And if you had these things, then like how much easier would that have been for you to do rather than having to go home and look up information online? And I'm absolutely an advocate for people self-educating, but I'm also an advocate for healthcare providers being more equipped with the tools and resources that they need in order to support us because not everybody's going to be as proactive as you were. And right. this is part I of their job. incident that was not herpes related, but it, it was related to my genitals. So I shared with the doctor at the time, like, hey, I also have HSV, so I know that it's not this was the point of that. But it was the... um was a nurse checking my vitals and I said HSV and she was just staring at me like long enough that I was like herpes and she was like oh okay like she didn't even know what I was telling her and that was awkward I was like oh. it's like you should know this <laughs> well I'm learning that doctors nurses really don't get much time with sexually transmitted infections sexual health or sex education even so uh that's why this project is something positive for positive people is working on getting funded 
is so important because what I want to do is bring sex educators in for a simulated experience with doctors who've been in the field for a while to give them practice taking a sexual history on a person who um, may be positive for an SCI or maybe um, has had it for a while, who may be... Um, is a, a gender identifying in a way that they may not look to the doctor. So they got to get comfortable with these things. It may be married and in a mutually non-monogamous relationship or just, you know, cheating. And whatever the case may be, that person needs to be able to come in and get care for their lifestyle. People engage in kink and BDSM and looking at sex not so one-dimensionally as intercourse between a heterosexual male and a heterosexual female, but to see that there are a variety of ways for us to be able to explore our sexuality and experience pleasure with others that could impact our health so that we, so I think that it's important that we get doctors to a place of being comfortable with speaking about sex outside of the context of intercourse so that we can get to this place. And that's what I'm really working on. And that's going to be kind of like a next step uh, from what this podcast series is, because what we're finding is that the self-education that you did when you left the uh, doctor's office that's what we want to sort of equip people with in their sex education as youth. Not necessarily the, here's how many people have herpes, here's how to treat herpes, but teaching them a framework of interacting in their relationships that allows for them to be communicative, for them to be able to ask for what they need, for them to be able to say no, for them to be able to hear no, for them to be able to recognize abusive, unethical, or ethical healthy behaviors in partners, friendships, relationships, as well as knowing how to seek support and that it's okay for them to need to seek out support in the event that something goes wrong. So the same stuff from kink and BDSM communities talking about consent, boundaries, and uh, looking up resources can be integrated into youth sex education without even talking about sex like this is like recess when we talk about playing in kink and bdsm we talk about playing uh on the playground as youth um, creating a structure of a game at recess if we can give youth that then we have adults that are people that are coming into their sexuality and their adulthood who are consent abiding boundary honoring and upholding um non-abusive adults who know how to seek out support if they need things. So what you have just shared uh, really parallels that messaging and just how important it is for us to be given communication skills as well. Definitely. I agree 100%, especially with youth, because trying to figure this stuff out as adults is hard, but imagine how much easier it would be if it was just seemed, I don't like the word always, but like, normal I don't know oh, from yeah. a young age yeah you know I know what you mean. I have a 12 year old and I'm just I'm open and honest with her about my diagnosis and like everything I just try and act like it's just I mean it is just what I have to deal with so mm -hmm. hopefully that helps her in a way but yeah I appreciate the work that you're doing that's why I was happy to share oh, thank you. hopefully be helpful in any way I can it absolutely is um and speaking of that like this resource and people online, these have been supportive resources for you. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. It was one of the first things I did. I mean, I like Googled and stuff, but I started searching up. It started on Facebook for me, just like herpes support groups is what I was like looking for and 
really just like reading and seeing what other people, you know, were saying and posting and kind of just led from there to like, you know, Instagram and TikTok, finding all the, just a handful of different pages, but that's been super helpful to me. And even seeing how some of them deal with the negative comments that people, you know, social media deal with, but seeing them and how they react to that, even that's super helpful because I have to experience that in real life too. I've also personally taken to just like, not like social media so much as you, but in my day-to-day life, like I've met some new friends and I just tell them too, even though I'm not going to be sexually active with them, so it doesn't really matter, but it's just me and my life. And I like practicing, I guess, being open and disclosing in a sense and just like educating because I've come to realize even a lot of my friends didn't know they've never been tested for herpes. They all assumed they were too when they said everything and it wasn't really included in that. So... And even that bit of information to know what we're being tested for and that we have not been tested for certain things, that too is powerful in a sense of when people go in for routine testing to just know that they have to ask for what they want to be tested for or they need to know what everyone's tested for so as not to assume that everyone's being tested for that because if you go and you present your results to someone who... uh, has not ever been tested for herpes before and they hear you say you have herpes they're like whoa i've never tested positive for herpes well you also may have not been tested for herpes and this is stuff that we learn on our own through our experiences so that's why i believe that it is so critical that our lived experiences be integrated into std prevention efforts hands down our lived experiences offer a significant amount of value to people who are not testing positive for SCIs, who are going to be tested for SCIs, who might test positive, who are living and have tested positive, because this supports them in navigating this space that our sex education stops at. Our sex education stops at do these things to not get an STD. However, when we go into the area beyond that where we become sexually active and we are exposed to STIs, then what? Like what happens when we test positive? What happens if somebody discloses their status to us? And what you're learning or what you found is online, you're hearing from us. So like maybe we need to start our own like sexual health organization called Positives Anonymous or I mean something positive for positive people. Just going to throw that out there and just make this a whole like... Uh, an extension or an arm of a health institution or organization that can provide the resources that we need now that we're in this space. Definitely. I agree. I think that would be a good thing to aim for. Right. I'm, I'm going to see what I can do about that. But for <laughs> now, um, I really want to tackle the stigma in health organizations with the healthcare providers, because I think that that's a really good space to present anti-stigmatizing information. Notice I'm saying anti-stigmatizing. I'm not saying uh, no stigma or ignoring it. Like I am talking about the acknowledgement and awareness of stigma and then providing like just how we get COVID vaccine or any sort of like vaccine or antidote for something. You have to put a little bit of what causes you to be sick in there so that you can have your natural immunity to it. So being able to understand what the stigma is and then understand how to navigate it. That is how we begin to heal because we start within ourselves. We can dissolve 
stigma within ourselves if we find ourselves in the right environment, if we have the right doctor, the right friends, the right support system, the right person that we disclose our status to who receives it and then responds to us in a way that shows us, oh, it's okay. And it's a way that challenges a lot of what we believe about ourselves after our diagnosis, right? Definitely. I, uh, I struggled with that for a little bit within myself, just from what I know about it personally, which was not a lot prior to being diagnosed and doing research. It was the little like one-liners and movies and like, you know, all these things people say and make jokes about it. Like that was like the extent of my, you know, what's one thing that doesn't stop giving stuff like that. Like, those are just the things that you like know about. So I'm like, well, shoot. And then, you know, like, I don't know, that comes just from society and being part of it, part of it, my age and like what I was taught. And that goes back to like being a youth and like you saying you're taught like how not to get it, but not what happens if you do. But that was even as simple as don't have sex until you get married. Like that's what I was taught. How realistic is that? Right. Not. And especially <laughs> even more for the youth nowadays, like that's just not going to cut it anymore. So. Yeah. And it's, it's just non-inclusive and it's not realistic. It's not reflective of today's society. And we have to get to a point where it is if we're going to make any sort of change. And we're just so stubborn in living in the status quo of how things are and the way things always have been. We don't want to change, but like we have to. If we don't change, then we're going to continue to have these spirals of people being diagnosed, people going into depression, people potentially killing themselves. And I don't know about everybody else, but I want to put myself out of business. Uh, this is my third podcast recording today. And on the second and first episode, even both episodes uh, that I recorded, what came up was how all this money is being thrown at government institutions to combat uh, rising STI transmission rates across the country. And here I am with this platform and, you know, I was able to get $10,000, you know, to, to do this much, but out of the 250, whatever, 260 interviews that I've done with people, the episodes that I have on the podcast, there is so much to take away from this qualitative data, these in-depth interviews about people's experiences that, tells us exactly what we need to do in order to numerically be able to reduce STI transmission rates. And it looks like sex education, uh, incorporating those components that don't have anything to do with sex, uh, giving that to youth so that they have that framework to take into their adulthood. And it also looks like incorporating our lived experiences into the current CDC recommended STD prevention efforts. And when we are able to do that, I believe that almost immediately, year over year, we'll see change despite population rising, despite accessibility of your next sexual partner being a thumb swipe away uh, and the internet connecting us all to where you can meet people however, whenever, wherever, and the accessibility of the information of like examples given on how to disclose uh, your sexual health status to a partner. We, we see how to have sex. That's not regulated by any means. Porn is also, you know, on this same device I'm interviewing you with at the palm of my hand. So why don't we have sex education that accessible and available to us at the palm of our hands without having to go and look for it ourselves? Did you answer the question, are you sex positive? 
affirm that you said. Yeah. So what, what does that mean to you? Um, to me, a big part of it currently for me personally is educating myself because I've become aware that I, my mind, what I know is small and comparative to everything that there is that includes that as far as well, you've listed a lot of it, but just the different communities, how the different ways that people engage in sex, like it's not so narrow-minded. So I've personally become aware that there's just a lot I don't know about. Um, and so I've been working on educating myself so that I personally am more aware. And when I have interactions with other people, I'm not so narrow-minded. I'm not reacting in a way that is making others feel down for something I'm not aware of, not something that I'm saying like I'm not okay with, but I just don't know about. But I think that it really is as big as just accepting everybody's views of what, I mean, as long as it's consenting between two people, like any, you know? Yeah. I don't have the right words, I think. But just like sex between like romantic relationships, non-romantic relationships for pleasure, not even a maybe emotional or any kind of relationship, sex work, like, I just feel like it gets bigger and bigger. And uh, so I think it's all inclusive and just being accepting, like many other things in the world right now, just doesn't pertain to you, then, oh, well. Yeah. It's important to some people, and they should be able to do that and feel good about it and have the resources they need for whatever that is for them. Mm-hmm. And I want to add to that, like, self-accepting like you talked about being accepting of other people's lifestyle but also you know you having acceptance for your own lifestyle and what it is that you like to do and being empowered in your own relationships uh something that continues to come up is this idea that sex positivity you know it, it embodies so much more than what we uh link to the word sex so it's not just intercourse it's also masturbation it's also kink and bdsm it's also power dynamics it's also mutual masturbation it's a lot of components to it and then also like pleasure you know not just pleasure in the sense of relate in relation to another person but like self-pleasure positivity is more probably more of an accurate statement because pleasure is not uh mutually exclusive to sex and so being accepting of what brings yourself and others pleasure as long as it's not causing harm to anyone else you know that's what I'm beginning to define sex positivity as for myself um because I think that with this sex positivity that I want to incorporate into educating healthcare providers who are taking sexual history I think that the differentiation between sex and pleasure is something that's going to help with people being non-judgmental and setting the stage for being able to uh, have a conversation between the patient and provider about sexual health and sexual activities and pleasure because what someone may deem as being sex may not be sex and you know they might not feel a need to disclose that because there's no risk in their mind in reality if the doctor knows that they are indulging in and a pleasure activity where there may be risk, then they can support them in healing scars and wounds perhaps, or uh, in minimizing their risk of potential infections, maybe not just STIs, but like bruising or um, 
if someone wants to learn about choking, things that you need to know in order to do it safely. Do that safely. Yes. And not be scared to ask for the help you need. Yes. Because it's stigmatized. Yes. And so I'm thinking that like, you know, sex positivity is more so about pleasure positivity. Yeah, I feel like that was a lot of my words shrunk down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you you did it. And, like, that, again, like, this is what this series is all about. Like, we're condensing things into a way that I can move moving forward in order to best support the Something Positive for Positive People audience and our whole community of people who are here and wanting to um, navigate the stigma, go through their healing process, and also support one another through their own lived experiences. And you being a part of that, Ashley, like, I, I thank you. Like, I appreciate you being here. Definitely. I was excited to have the opportunity. <laughs> Great. So, uh, I mean, that said, you answered all of my questions that I have for you. The discussion went very well. It was smooth. You've been a great guest. Thank you for being here. Is there anything else that you would like to leave people with before I let you go? Anything that you want to say that you may have wanted to say? I think I'm good. I was excited and thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing and I'm sure you hear it and but probably can't hear it enough. It definitely has helped me and I've shared your page with many of other people. So you're doing great. You're helping. So thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, share this podcast, as well as the nonprofits, resources, organization stuff. Um, if you are like on the fence about reaching out, like I talk to everybody, you can hit me up on Instagram at H on my chest. Um, if you're someone who would rather just email, you can do that as well. Courtney at SPFPP.org. Uh, donations, you can do that through Patreon or PayPal at uh, the website slash SPFPP, or you can donate via Venmo or Cash App at Courtney Brain. A lot of the work that I'm doing here now is uh, still trying to help people with getting therapy, uh, wanting to start group therapy sessions if I can get people to show up, uh, holding in-person support groups in Portland, Oregon on a bi-weekly basis, maybe twice a month if I can get people to show up. Uh, the first time we had one, one person came. Uh, so we just really had a conversation. But um, it's one of those things where I know that I just got to be consistent with it and start building trust and building community, not necessarily building the herpes community, which uh, that, that phrasing always makes me go, Ugh. but a community of people who are sex positive, pleasure positive, and wanting to um, find a new way to navigate stigma and support others who might be struggling with it in their, themselves. Till next time, stay sex positive or pleasure positive. Yeah, we, we gonna do this. I, I think I'm gonna make that a thing.